So did they start their own country? They did. In 1777, that's the date of the birth of the Republic of Vermont. And just a little, just to be complete about it, before that, they were called the New Hampshire Grants, because they've been granted by New Hampshire. And the initial working title was New Connecticut, because most of them had come up from Connecticut. Yeah. But then they realized, no, we're our new thing. We don't want to be associated with the Continental Congress or any of those colonies. So we're going to be called Vermont and create a new word. And the word came up and the name came up from Ira Allen, who it was basically remembered as Ethan Allen's smarter brother. Oh, okay. Ira Allen was well versed in Latin and got the name from Veres Montes, which is Latin for Green Mountains. There is an old myth that it came from the French, Montagne Vert, which is not the same. It came from Latin. We know that our Alan knew Latin. He used Veres Montes in the logo of University of Vermont when he founded that. So anyway, it's from the Latin. And that was applied in 1777. And Vermont was its own republic until 1791, when it became the 14th state of the United States. Wow. <laughs> they figured that they couldn't make go it alone anymore, and they decided, after some debate, that they would not be joining up with Quebec to the north. That wonderful history of Varus Montes, known as Vermont, was shared by Mr. John Mathewson from the Dorset Historical Society in Dorset, Vermont. Learn much more coming up on this episode of Preservation Oaks. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the program. Hey, everybody. Thanks for being here. Our previous episode was also in Vermont, and I got to tell you, Vermont is simply beautiful, both in a historical and a natural way. We have a great show for you today. For this episode, we greet John Mathewson, the curator of the Dorset Historical Society located in Dorset, Vermont. Chartered in 1963, the Dorset Historical Society collects, preserves, and interprets the community's cultural resources. Whether you're an individual, a family, business, or foundation, you can help them fulfill their mission. If you're a resident in the local area, this episode will help you understand what the Society has to offer, how you can participate and take advantage of the worthwhile events the Society sponsors, and how to best support them by volunteering and donating. 
This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe coming to you from Salt Lake City, and this is Preservation Oaks, the internationally syndicated original talk program on MicroStream Radio, where we feature interviews with professionals from museums, cultural and heritage institutions, historical and genealogical societies across the United States. By the way, our main platform is preservationoaks.podbean.com but we're also on almost every podcast platform, as well as Facebook, TikTok, Odyssey, and YouTube. So wherever you listen to the program, I appreciate it very much when you like, comment, follow, or subscribe. Many of our listeners listen to the program while driving in the car. If you're listening and you'd like to be a guest on the program, or if you have questions or comments about the program, spin off an email to preservationoaks at gmail.com. On our next episode of Preservation Oaks, we'll be meeting with William Hawkins, the executive director of Historic Tuscaloosa. Since 1966, Historic Tuscaloosa has been preserving and promoting Tuscaloosa County's historic resources. A nonprofit organization, the Society's mission is to develop an awareness and appreciation of the historical and cultural heritage of the community. Their society has enjoyed steady growth over the years and is recognized as one of the strongest preservation groups in the Southeast. They tell an important story of America, and it'll be fun and interesting learning more about them. All right, that being said, let's get this show snapping. Our historic April events for this episode. On April 3rd, 1860, in the American West, the Pony Express service began as the first rider departed St. Joseph, Missouri. For $5 an ounce, letters were delivered 2,000 miles to California within 10 days. The famed Pony Express riders each rode from 75 to 100 miles before handing the letters off to the next rider. A total of 190 way stations were located about 15 miles apart. The service lasted less than two years, ending upon the completion of the Overland Telegraph. On April 3, 1944, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled 8-1 to one that African Americans cannot be barred from voting in the Texas Democratic primaries. The court stated that discrimination against blacks violates the 15th Amendment and that political parties are not private associations. On April 3, 1995, Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor became the first woman to preside over the court, sitting in for Chief Justice William H. Rehnquist, who was out of town. On April 3, happy birthday to American writer Washington Irving, who lived from 1783 to 1859. He was born in New York City. His works include Rip Van Winkle, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, and historical biographies such as The Life of Washington. I read Rip Van Winkle about once a year. I just love the original. I just love the way it's written. On April 4, 1949, 12 nations signed the treaty creating NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. The nations united for common military defense against the threat of expansion by Soviet Russia into Western Europe. On April 9, 1866, despite a veto by President Andrew Johnson, the Civil Rights Bill of 1866 was passed by Congress, granting blacks the rights and privileges of U.S. citizenship. On April 11, 1968, 
A week after the assassination of Martin Luther King, the Civil Rights Act of 1968 was signed into law by President Lyndon B. Johnson. The law prohibited discrimination in housing, protected civil rights workers, and expanded the rights of Native Americans. On April 14, 1775, in Philadelphia, the first abolitionist society in America was founded as the Society for the Relief of Free Negroes Unlawfully Held in Bondage. On April 16th, happy birthday to American aviation pioneer Wilbur Wright, who lived from 1867 to 1912. He was born in Millville, Indiana. On December 17, 1903, along with his brother Orville, the Wright brothers made the first successful flight of a motor-driven aircraft. It flew for 12 seconds and traveled 120 feet. By 1905, they had built a plane that could stay airborne for half an hour, performing figure eights and other aerial maneuvers. Wilbur died of typhoid fever in May of 1912. Thank you to the History Place at historyplace.com for our events for this episode. Let's drink some tea. Twinies tea. I love Twinies tea. You can email us anytime at preservationoaks at gmail.com. Preservation Oaks is available for listeners on nearly all podcast platforms, as well as TikTok, Facebook, Odyssey, and YouTube. Here's a brief biography of today's guest. John Mathewson has spent the last 30-plus years of his career preserving and interpreting history as a registrar, collections manager, curator, and consultant. He received his B.A. in History from Union College in Schenectady, New York, and his M.A. in History from the University of Vermont. He has worked at the American Museum of Fly Fishing in Manchester, Vermont, the Henry Sheldon Museum of Vermont History in Middlebury, the Dorset Historical Society, and with private collections. He has served on the boards of the Slate Valley Museum in Granville, New York, and the Middleton Springs, Vermont, Historical Society. Outside of museum work, John is a widely published poet, is involved with the local community theater troupe, the Dorset Players, where he has acted, stage managed, and directed. He currently sits on the board. He also served three terms as president of the Pulteney Vermont Rotary Club and was even president of the board of his church. His son just graduated from college. His daughter just started college, which gives him more time with his bees. Welcome to the program, John. Hey, it's great being here. Thanks for having me, Sean. I really appreciate you being here. How's skiing been in Vermont this year? Well, it's been off and on. We haven't had much snow until the last two weeks, but the mountains make their own snow, and so people have been coming up. I understand that President's Day weekend was very busy in the area. And right now, it's all melting away this week. We have temperatures in the 50s, and so it'll be some great spring skiing for a week or two. Oh, fantastic. I know Dorset is certainly a wonderful place. It's green. It's rich <laughs> in history and beauty. I was struck by the size of some of the homes. They're truly huge and beautiful. Yeah, well, thank you. The homes are large, but they were pretty much built as uh, single-family dwellings. Back, a lot of them were usually in the 1840s to 1860s is when they were built as, as single-family homes, and many of them still are. The ones I was talking about are if you go down Church Street. Yes. Really big. 
in the historic district. And some have been in recent years even enlarged so that they're even bigger. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right across the street from the Historical Society Museum is the Dorset Library. It's a beautiful building as well. Does the Historical Society do genealogical research for people, or are people referred to the library? People come into us, and the library refers people to us. We have a very good working relationship with the library. The head librarian over there is Erica Schott, and she's just doing a crackerjack job over there, and we're doing all kinds of programming with them. Not all of our programming is with them, but a lot of it is. and they're great people to work with. Fantastic. And being across the street from each other, it's just a natural synergy. Yeah, it's great. What's the history of Dorset Historical Society? We were founded in 1963, almost 60 years ago, 60 years ago this year, primarily by some people in Dorset who realized that they, they should have a historical society. They should have something to preserve the history. And also the person who had been preserving a lot of that history and had written a book in the 1920s about it, an author called Zephine Humphrey, had just passed away. And they were wondering what to do with her papers. And so one of the reasons to start the Historical Society was to have a repository for her notes on the history of Dorset. Since then, we've grown to be a lot more than just that. But that was the, the seed that was planted in 1963. Wow, fantastic. I understand your society is about to celebrate your 60-year anniversary. What are you planning to help celebrate that? In November, and I forget the exact date, but the date of our incorporation is in November and or October, one of the two, and we'll have some kind of open house party celebration for it. Oh, that's great. Do you usually have good turnout for those? Yes, we'll have... Probably so it'll be in the evening, my guess is, and we'll have some kind of hors d'oeuvres served. Nice. And then sparkling water, things like that. Yeah. Now, your building is really cool. I encourage all the listeners to go on your favorite map app and look at the homes in Dorset because they are unique, at least to my eyes anyway. If you live there, it's probably old hat, but... From my eyes, they're really interesting because the design of the home is uh, homes are, you know, you've got your normal front of the home, but then you have these small windows on top for some reason. What's the purpose for those? For some of the smaller houses, the ones that didn't have a full second floor, it was just a way to get light in. And sometimes on the gable end, and I understand this is, a Vermont thing, and is isn't everywhere else. Who knew? But on the gable ends, sometimes those windows are placed at an angle. So they're not horizontal or vertical, they're at an angle. And those are called witch windows. Oh, wow. Okay. So that the witches, I'm not sure if it's so the witches could get in or out, or to keep witches in or out. I, but I just know they're called witch windows, probably because they're just odd windows. Now, your museum is also called the Blay House Museum. Is that right? Yes. Uh, the Blay House Museum, named after Elsie Bly, who is a local artist who taught many, many people how to be artists. 
And when she lived in the house, when she passed away in 1990, she bequeathed the building to the Historical Society. Yes. We moved in soon after and have been there ever since. We did some major renovations in 2005 and 2006, which made it more of a climate-controlled building right. in a dry basement. And we moved it forward a little bit. Right, so it's a little bit larger now and a much sturdier building than it was. Very cool. When was it originally built? I missed that. The building has a very interesting history that ties into an even larger history. It was built in the 1840s in Hebron, New York. Now, you might say Hebron, New York, that sounds different than Dorset, Vermont. And you'd be right. There was a guy called Charlie Wade, who for many years had had a livery business in Dorset Village, who realized that there were some people who wanted to move to Dorset and they wanted to live in very old houses, but they weren't making old houses anymore. <laughs> so he moved them, wow. including three from New York State in the late 1920s, including the house for Mrs. Houghton, which was later bought by Elsa Bly. And yeah, he just moved it over here piece by piece, put it back together. There's another house in the historic district just up the road that he also moved from Hebron and an old schoolhouse that we believe came from Greenwich, New York, around the same time. Also in the late 1920s, he moved three barns from Rupert, Vermont, to create the Dorset Playhouse, which is still in operation. Wow, very cool. Very and in cool. the 1930s, because there were still people who wanted old houses that they weren't making anymore, he found out that the state of Massachusetts had condemned four towns to make way for a reservoir, and they needed to get rid of all of the houses. So he moved, I think, a total of 14 houses mainly to Dorset, but to other places as well. And that kept him and a lot of people occupied during the Depression years. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a great story. Very cool. So you asked me the history of the Bly House, and here I am going on to the Quabbin Reservoir in Dorset, sorry, or in Massachusetts. Sorry about that. (laughs) That's okay. So do you have any information on the Bly family? A little bit. Elsa Bly was single her entire life. She grew up in New York. Her father was a pharmacist. And that's basically all I know. She had her first studio in Scarsdale, New York, I believe it was. And then moved up to Dorset as a summer place. And then after the Second World War, lived here full time. Yeah, it's a great place to live. And just a little postscript. She taught many young people how to draw, how to paint. And every so often, they still come in. People who are professional artists will come in and say, yeah, my first art classes were in this building. Oh, that is cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. You have a a great artist culture there in the area. We do. Since after the Civil War, we've been something of an artist colony, especially during the 20th century. But people associated with the Arts League of New York, Art Students League of New York, would come up during the summers and paint. 
spend their days painting and and then leave and then some would buy houses and stay here more permanently Very and that nice. that survives to this day there's still a lot of artists in the area it's hard for me to understand where in town is versus out of town because the town is sort of spread out. I can confuse people very easily because in the towns when Benning Wentworth, back in 1761, the governor of New Hampshire drew a bunch of squares on a map and that those were the original towns of Vermont, southern Vermont. They were about five by five, five miles by five miles square. And he didn't pay attention to geography. Oh. So some towns are separated by mountains. So you couldn't get from here to there, if you will. Yeah. And in Dorset, there were six villages that sprouted up that are, that are still around. Three on one side of the mountain, three on the other side of the mountain. Oh, that's So a, it can, it can be confusing it. if you don't know all six. That really explains it well. I wondered why it was laid out the way it was. Okay. There's a mountain range that goes right through the center of the town. And so along routes, what's now Route 7, there is North Dorset, East Dorset, and South Village. Not to be confused with the other side of the mountain, which has South Dorset, <laughs> Dorset Village, and East Rupert. East yeah. Rupert is two-thirds of that village is in Rupert, but about a third of it is over the border into Dorset. Wow. When I looked at the historic districts in the town, and correct me if I've got it wrong, but I think one is Dorset Village Historic District, and the other one yes. is East Dorset Village Historic District. Is that right? No. Ask me in a few months, and it will be partially right, even more right than, than it is now. <laughs> There okay. is a Dorset Village Historic District yeah. that was originally done in the 1970s and then expanded later on. And there are some people working diligently on getting the East Dorset Historic District being declared an official historic district. My understanding is that paperwork is still being reviewed. Okay. So in a year from now, I would say, of course, East Dorset Historic District. There's also the Kent Neighborhood Historic District, which is on the Dorset Village side of the mountain. And it's where one of the first families settled, the, the Kent family, and where some major historic events occurred in the 1770s. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Very cool. What's that Dorset Field Club? Oh, the Dorset Field Club is, again, in the historic district here in the village, kind of across the street from us, but there are buildings between us and them. They were started as a golf course, mainly by people from the Troy, New York area. And they opened up the greens in the late 1800s. It was a nine-hole course for a very long time. And it is referred to as a Oldest continually operated golf course in the United States. Oh, yeah. Um, that is a little bit debatable because I think there were a few months during World War II where they weren't open, but nobody really counts that no. as being officially closed. Yeah. If you're a golf enthusiast, you would just have to come to Dorset and play that course. Yes, it's a private course, but there are ways to, to get onto it. 
And it's been expanded to be an 18-hole course now. That was done a few years ago. And it's a very active golf course. I'll be going by into work, and it'll be snowing out. And there'll be people out there on the greens (laughs) uh, golfing, just starting their golfing. Because, you know, they're not going to let a snowstorm stop them. (laughs) Of course. And they also have the other things at the golf, the field club. They have a nice dining room, great food there. They have a racquetball court, croquet court. There are people who play squash and pickleball. Oh, nice. And, of course, tennis. Well, thanks for that. What's the history of Bennington County? Bennington County was created by the governor of New Hampshire, Benning Wentworth, in the late 1740s, um, or the town of Bennington was. The governor of New Hampshire was Benning Wentworth, and he named it Bennington after himself, as one does, I suppose. And Bennington became a place for people to come up from, mainly from Connecticut, people who weren't inheriting the family farm, third, fourth, and fifth sons, if you will. It also became a place for people to settle kind of a new frontier for Connecticut and Rhode Island and Massachusetts because it was considered a lawless land and a new land where people could start anew. For instance, in Connecticut and Massachusetts, there were some congregationalists who held similar views from each other, but very different views from people in their churches, the new and separates. And they all decided to move to Bennington to live together in peace and harmony, celebrating what others called heretical religious views. And after a while, when they were in Bennington, they realized that, no, that wasn't a good idea because they weren't really united by their religious views. What they really had in common was that they just couldn't get along with other people. And so after 1761, by the late 1760s, when Benning Wentworth had created the other towns in southern Vermont, a lot of the new and separates in Bennington all went out to different towns. So just about every town in southern Vermont has early settlers who had been new and separates. And that fits into a lot of early history of Vermont as well. So Bennington County had been settled early on in Bennington, and then Benning Wentworth created other towns in 1761, and slowly but surely, those towns were settled, branching out from Bennington. People didn't go too far away. For instance, no one settled in Dorset until 1768, and even farther north in what's now Middletown Springs, no one settled until 1774. Oh, okay. So it's all during that era that slowly but surely people spread out into the hinterlands. So this Benny Wentworth, he laid out Dorset as well? Yes. Mainly during the summer of 1761, he believed that as governor of New Hampshire, he had control over all the lands to as far west as 30 miles east of the Hudson River. Okay. The reason he thought that is that that's the definition of the western borders of Connecticut and Massachusetts. Now, New Hampshire, and I'm forgetting the exact date here, I think 1741, early on, New Hampshire was created out of Massachusetts. And so the assumption was that the western border of New Hampshire was the same as the western border of of Massachusetts. It's a 
a simple assumption, one that, that makes sense in hindsight. However, the governor of New York felt differently. He believed that the border of New York from north of the Massachusetts line east went as far as the Connecticut River. Mm-hmm. And so Benning Wentworth created towns in 1761, and then real estate, land started to be sold for those towns, and people began to settle in them. And then New York said, oh, no, we've got these towns that we're creating, and these are the towns that we are going to sell to to people so they can settle here. So you had conflicting land claims. New York did say that they were willing to let the people who had already settled in in Vermont, or what was were called New Hampshire grants at the time, they could buy New York deeds, but for exorbitant prices. All right, of course. Which these people didn't have. They were not wealthy people. They had sold what they could to buy the land they had up here, and they didn't have anything extra. They they were at that time subsistence farmers, and so there was disagreement over that, which sometimes ended up in fist fights and and bloodshed because. New Hampshire, and this you could say is still true today, had a very lazy, fair attitude. Benning Wentworth said, I created the town. That's fine. They're on their own. Whereas New York was a little bit more proactive in their municipalities, and they set up courthouses and whatnot. And it was at the Windsor Courthouse that several people were killed for defying the New York troops. and. Westminster, I'm sorry. That was the Westminster Massacre. Okay. So during the early 1700s, there were a lot of squabbles of various degrees between the people in Vermont who said that they had proper deeds through New Hampshire and versus the, the authorities from New York. Yeah, there was Vermont squeezed right in between the two. And that's what gave rise to the Green Mountain Boys. They were people who, beginning in 1772, would gather to protect each other from the incursions of the New York authorities. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, And remember Baker was one of the early people who had been arrested, but the Green Mountain Boys went and rescued him from the New York authorities who had arrested him. Wow. Because of land. Yeah. Yeah. They, they bought land and they were here. They moved here to sell it. And then they were told, no, this isn't your land. Yeah. That's terrible. And by the way, you've got to rebuy the land (laughs) for a lot more than you, than it's worth. That's terrible. Yeah. I'd be kind of upset about that myself. Oh, man. Uh, did that play out in the courts or did the Green Mountain Boys just sort of say, you know, they paid for this land, this land is theirs, and we're going to defend it. It did play out in the courts. And I think it was 1772 or 73 when the New York courts said that the land was New York's. Okay. Which some historians who have looked at those court records say that it was a honest judicial decision, honest and fair. But at the time, the settlers thought it was just a kangaroo court. Yeah. 
they wouldn't have called it a kangaroo court at the time because they didn't know about kangaroos, but they, they did not accept the court's decision. And so they wanted the Continental Congress to make a decision about the controversy. And so they sent a delegation down to the Continental Congress in 1775, and the Continental Congress said, no, we can't, no, that's, that's, we've got other things on our mind. Bring it up with the King of England. So after another meeting, and these are meetings of delegation, delegates from all the towns in southern Vermont, mainly southwestern Vermont on the western side of the Green Mountains. Yeah. And they had another meeting and both of these meetings and the third meeting were all held in Dorset at a tavern kept by a guy called Cephas Kent. And they decided to send a delegation to England to ask the King of England, what's the deal? So they get there, and of course, the King of England's not going to meet with these ragged people from the New England, the New Hampshire Grant. Oh, big mistake. And so they say, well, a pox on everyone's house. And this is in 1776 by now. We're going to go our own way. We're going to create our own country, our own republic. But we don't want to rush into it. We're going to have another meeting on the eastern side of the Green Mountains, get more towns from over there to buy into it. And so in early 1777, they had the convention in Windsor, Vermont. And that's when they voted for Vermont independence. And Cephas Kent was sort of driving all this? He was the host of the meetings. He was an active force in it, but they were meeting in his house. And it was in his house because it was more centrally located on the western side, because Bennington's a little bit south. Dorset would be easier for people from Rutland and Wallingford, which are to the north, to get to. And he had a small, it was probably just a log cabin of a house. Right. Um, that had just been built. And it's no longer standing. Where it was is now an empty lot. There is a historic marker near there. Yeah, I saw that historic, historic marker. Ones. That was pretty cool. So did they start their own country? They did. In 1777, that's the date of the birth of the Republic of Vermont. And just a little, just to be complete about it, before that, they were called the New Hampshire Grants, because they'd been granted by New Hampshire. And the initial working title was New Connecticut, because most of them had come up from Connecticut. Yeah. But then they realized, no, we're our new thing. We don't want to be associated with the Continental Congress or any of those colonies. So we're going to be called Vermont and create a new word. And the word came up, and the name came up from Ira Allen, who it was basically remembered as Ethan Allen's smarter brother. Okay. Ira Allen was well-versed in Latin and got the name from Vers Montes, which is Latin for Green Mountains. There is an old myth that it came from the French, Montagne-Vert, which is not the same. It came from Latin. We know that our Alan knew Latin. He used Vers Montes in the logo of the University of Vermont when he founded that. So anyway, it's from the Latin, and that was applied in 1777. And Vermont was its own republic until 1791. 
when it became the 14th state of the United States. Wow. <laughs> they figured that they couldn't make, go it alone anymore. And they decided after some debate that they would not be joining up with Quebec to the north. Well, that's very interesting history. Wow. I am leaving out so many details. It's difficult, but you know, for your listeners, this is a good, good overview, I think. Wow. We had a country within our country. Oh, and that's even though it was only a country for 14 years, it's a very interesting history because we coined our own uh, money, the Harmings Mint in East Rupert, which is not too far from Dorset Village. Yeah. Vermont became known because there were no extradition. It wasn't recognized by the United States as its own country. It became a refuge for all kinds of refugees. From, 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 from Europe States. or from the United States? From the United States, most famously, and this is going on in our neck of the woods, has been for a few years now. It's really fascinating. Shays' Rebellion down in Massachusetts in the 1780s. Yeah. They had to get out of town after that rebellion. So they came and settled their own village in outside of Arlington, Vermont. I think it's officially in Sunderland, Vermont, but I'm not sure. It might be in Arlington somewhere in a place that you still can't get to from here. On top of something called Egg Mountain was where a lot of families from the Shays' Rebellion settled. Cool. And Shays' Rebellion, if I recall, was, and I could be wrong, but I think it was all about soldiers that fought in the revolution getting pensions? Or not getting pensions. Yeah, not getting pensions. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And then being told to get off their land because they couldn't couldn't pay the money that they had been expecting from the pensions. Wow. Yeah, that had to make them upset as well. And there's a no one went to the village where they settled for about two hundred years. A local legend, and this has actually been borne out, was that around 1815, the people who were in the village were all wiped out by some epidemic. Okay. So it became remembered as a plague town. So no one went there because they didn't want to get the plague or whatever disease had been there. And so although some curious people had gone up, it was basically an undisturbed archaeological site that a few years ago, some people started to, to do digs in. And every year they found out, find out that the village was larger than they thought. Cool. But there were a lot of families up there for, for about a generation and a half. So we had some speed bumps in our, our journey to freedom, huh? Oh yeah. Wow. We still do. Yeah. We it's still an ongoing, do. ongoing story. Well, John, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's time for our first break for a few minutes. Time flies. It does. And I thank you for it. All right, <laughs> listeners, we'll be right back after these important messages. Remember that feeling of wonder when you learned something fascinating about the past for the very first time? The Dorset Historical Society is bringing the past back to life. 
Their goal is to celebrate the rich history and culture of the Dorset, Vermont area. Be a part of the action by volunteering and supporting the Dorset Historical Society. Visit dorsetvthistory.org and learn more about this valuable local nonprofit organization. Please donate, volunteer, and become a member, or visit them today at Route 30 at Kent Hill Road, Dorset, Vermont, 05251. This is well worth your support and you'll have fun at the same time. It's time for Preservation Oaks Book Shorts. Book Shorts is a segment of the program where we quickly introduce listeners to authors and books which satisfy your love of history and genealogy, help you with your own research, and finally help you improve the depth and wisdom of your unique family story. Welcome back to Book Shorts. We have a great segment today. The Kentucky Genealogical Society and President Chris Paget have just released a book that should send anticipatory quivers up the spines of those researching their Kentucky ancestors. On this installment of Book Shorts, we're very fortunate to be joined by President Chris Paget to chat about the new Kentucky Genealogical Society book, Essential Guide to Researching Your Kentucky Family History. There were 18 contributors to the book. Each author contributed a chapter to the guide. Family researchers can uncover the stories of Kentucky ancestors and delve into the rich history of the Bluegrass State. This comprehensive guide is a must-have resource for anyone looking to explore their family history in Kentucky. It will take you step-by-step to learn to perform comprehensive genealogical Kentucky research and to piece together your Kentucky family history, from understanding the state's history to expert advice and inspiration using genealogical techniques and tricks. The Kentucky Genealogical Society formed in 1973 to provide educational opportunities for family researchers. In addition to that goal, the Society raises money to preserve records of genealogical value to Kentucky. The proceeds from this book support that goal. All right. Chris, welcome to Book Shorts. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Sean. I'm just delighted to talk to you today. You're welcome. First of all, I'd like to say how awesome it is that the Kentucky Genealogical Society brought forth this excellent new research guide. It's really great. Well, we're excited about it. This is the 50th anniversary of our society, and there has not been a guidebook published to Kentucky research for over 30 years. So the last guidebook was published by one of our members, Roseanne Hogan, and that was published in 1992 uh, with a company called Ancestry at the time, which is now Ancestry.com. So this is the first uh, guidebook that has been brought to market since 1992, focused on Kentucky research. Wow, cool. Can you give us an overview of the book? Right. So it's uh, got six parts. First part is understanding Kentucky history. Kentucky's history is fascinating. Kentucky is a daughter of Virginia. There's different parts of Kentucky that there have been disputes over over time. There, You've got the Jackson Purchase. You've got Walker's Line down with Tennessee. But we go into the baseline history that you need to understand in researching Kentucky. Second part is a basics of family research. You know, specifically, because a lot of our members don't live in Kentucky, how to research in Kentucky when you don't live there. Third part is finding genealogical sources in Kentucky. A lot of Kentucky records are not online. They're sitting on a shelf somewhere. Fourth part is uh, tricks and tips on finding 
your Kentucky ancestors. And there's, you know, a chapter in there about finding marriages for formerly enslaved folks. Lots of different tips and tricks that would be helpful for people. Fifth part is uh, sharing your research. So once you've compiled your book about your family history, how do you get that out there? And then the sixth part is reference. We've got tons of maps, county formation information, all the different basic information you need to research your Kentucky ancestors. Wow. Nice job, guys. Wow. Thank you. This is sorely needed for Kentucky. Well, and I'll make some news with you today, Sean. This is the this is volume one of three. So there will be uh, books two and three coming out, guidebooks two and three coming out later this year. So this is the first part of a trilogy, if you will, in researching in Kentucky. Wow, that is great. Thank you for that. Wow. I can't wait to read them. We're excited. <laughs> Where's the best place for somebody to get a copy of the book? Amazon.com. We publish with Amazon and uh, you go out on Amazon today. Amazon actually sets the price of the book, if you can believe that. And a little bird told me today that they have adjusted the price down a little bit. So it is, it's on sale right now. Uh, so you can go get your copy on Amazon. Okay. Thank you very much. Listeners, get your very own copy of The Essential Guide to Researching Your Kentucky Family History, which was released on March 9th and is receiving excellent reviews. This book can help you immediately make progress finding and documenting your Kentucky ancestors. Chris, I want to thank you for being a guest on Book Shorts, and I'd like to thank you for your time and for your society's book. You come back anytime. Thank you so much, Sean, and, and thank you for creating this platform to help groups like the Kentucky Genealogical Society get the word out about the projects we're working on. So thank you. You're most welcome. Listeners, be sure you visit the Kentucky Genealogical Society website at kygs.org. Once you've read this excellent book, be sure to leave a review. I'd also love to hear from you as well about what you think about the book. Send those to preservationoaks at gmail.com. I thank you in advance for doing that. Much appreciated. All right, we'll see you all next time on the next Book Shorts. And now, back to Preservation Oaks. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe. We're here today with John Mathewson, the curator from the Dorset Historical Society, located in Dorset, Vermont. John, let's jump back into it and welcome back. Thanks. It's great to be here. I'd like to share the contact information for the Dorset Historical Society. You can visit their website at dorsetvthistory.org. Their mailing address is P.O. Box 52, Route 30 at Kent Hill Road, Dorset, Vermont, 05251. You can call them at 802-867-0331. You can email them at info at dorsetvthistory.org. Their hours are Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., Saturday, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., they have a YouTube channel called Dorset Historical Society, and you can find them on Facebook. Just look for Dorset Historical Society, and they're on Instagram at Dorset Historical Society. That all sound right? It sounds 
Perfect. Okay, thank you. I just want to add that our Instagram page had been dormant, but the gentleman who takes wonderful pictures of area landscapes is starting to post photos of historic sites with a little bit of the history about them. And so that's something that we're very happy about right now. Oh, yeah, that's great. So, John, can you provide the audience with an overview of the communities you serve, the variety of your membership, and the mission and objectives of your society? Yes. The communities we serve are basically anyone who comes in the door, A, and the people who don't come in the door, who we think should come in the door. We serve people who live in town and are usually new to the area and are interested in knowing more about the history of where they've just moved to. And our other large group are people who have ancestors or family from the area, and they want to keep up in touch with what's going on in the history about their families or in the town that they know. And those are the basic two, but from there you can atomize it even more. We serve people who have a lifelong interest in learning. We have we go into the schools and host school trips here to serve the, the kids so that they become lifelong learners of history. And the mission and objective is to do exactly that, to preserve and interpret the history of Dorset, because we have a lot of history. We've got over 250 years of history of settlement, not to mention the Mohican people who were here before the settlers. And it's interesting, and we want to spread, spread that interesting history out there. Can you tell our audience a little bit about your background? How did you come to do what you do now for the Historical Society? I have a BA in history from Union College in Schenectady, New York, and a master's in history from the University of Vermont. And soon after getting that, instead of going into teaching what a lot of people do, I find myself doing gallery and museum work, specifically in collections. And I've been doing that ever since. It's been about 30 years in different museums and doing it as a consultant for private collections. And I started the Dorset Historical Society back in 2011. That's 12 years ago. Gosh, like I said before, time flies. And I just have a um, keen interest in preserving and interpreting the material culture of the area. Yeah. Whatever yeah. that area I might be working in. You're really integrated into the fabric of the area, the community. I also understand you're a judge at the annual history camp. Can you tell us about that? I'm a longtime judge at the Vermont History Day competition. Okay. Coming up April 9th. And what is and that? The History Day competition is a national competition. The finals are in Washington, D.C. or outside of Washington, D.C., I believe, generally. And each state has its final competition. And what it is is students in middle school and high school have several different ways that they can enter, doing skits based on history, doing videos, doing websites, doing exhibits, doing speeches about a historical topic on a specific theme, and in accordance to certain rules. And then a bunch of us gather together at the site this year. It'll be at the University of Vermont and in one of their big gathering places. And there are Teams of judges that go around and interview the students about their projects, whether it's an individual project or a group project, 
and then we judge them. And then there's a big award ceremony, and the winner is to get to go on to the national. Oh, that's is, great. Like, we'll leave in May in Washington, D.C. Oh, that is very cool. Very oh, cool. It's, it's a wonderful time to see all these kids so excited about different parts of history. Yeah. And and how they and how they're seeing history. I've been doing this for longer than most of the contestants have been alive. Right. At this point, which is a very sobering thing for me to say. And like the organizers always say in their introductory speech to the judges is that remember, things that happened before they were born are new to them and history to them, whereas they happened to us yesterday. Yeah. For yeah. instance, if someone does a exhibit on 9-11, that happened before they were born. Yeah, that's kind of and, hard to keep in mind sometimes when you're as old as we are, huh? Yeah, and I mean, for me, I mean, that that's current events. Yep. But it really isn't. That was, that was 22 years ago. Well, that must be so very gratifying to help those kids, and especially if one of them goes to the national. So, John, what's coming up on the horizon? Where's the Dorset Historical Society headed in 2023? Well, we're heading into exciting places. We've got our usual programming coming up. We really come to life in June every year once the snow melts and it gets warmer out and people have their gardens planted. There are a lot of retirees in the area and they come up and they provide a lot of help and support. And the second weekend in June will be our annual new exhibits open house. Right now I'm working on new exhibits. They change every year and working on five exhibits for that. One of the exhibits will be on the Quabbin houses. I mentioned Charlie Wade earlier, the gentleman who moved all those houses. This will be an updated display on what we know, know about the houses he moved up. We're always learning more about them and how he did it and where they went and where they came from. Nice. Also, there was a poultry farmer in town, a guy called Huntington Pratt Gilbert, who had a camera and knew how to use it back in the early 1900s. And he would, he had a great photographic eye. And we were donated a while back hundreds of his negatives, most of which had never been developed before. And so over the last 14 years, we've been developing those slowly but surely, digitizing them. And every year we've done 50 and exhibited 20. And last year we finished the project, which was a huge relief. And so this year, we're going to expand the, that exhibit and do his best photographs from that and some other things he did from his life. He also painted, and we have one of his paintings, so that'll go on display and things like that. And so that'll be a major exhibit. We'll open up in June, a retrospective of now that we're done, here's the best of it. Now, have and you identified all of the individual people that might be in those photographs? Yes and no. He identified them. He wrote notes oh, as goodness. to who was in each picture. But sometimes it, the note was Fanny. Fanny who? Or Joe? Joe who? We don't know. <laughs> so we might have a first name or Mr. Snyder visiting. Who's Mr. Snyder? Right. We don't know. Actually, I think Mr. Snyder, I found out about him. And then there, there are unidentified people. Right. But they're, they're interesting pictures like one of them is 
at a family reunion, or I think it may have been a wedding, he had all of the grandchildren, so not his children, it may have been his children, no, or or his nieces and nephews all line up, and it's called 19 of 20 grandchildren. <laughs> nice. He did this over decades, right? Yes. He and his cousin Harriet, she took a lot of the pictures as well, started around 1905, and the last ones that are dated are, I think, 19, they go from 1904 to 1914. Very cool. Yeah. Wow. And Harriet, meanwhile, had gotten married and moved over to New Hampshire. And in that time frame, he had to pretty much develop those himself, right? Oh, yes. And he was not a, he was not a wealthy, wealthy man. I mean, he, he, he was an egg farmer. Oh, right. Yep. He, he did turn some of his pictures into postcards. So that was some extra income for him for a while. Oh, very cool. But that'll be a great exhibit. And then another exhibit is about over the years, we've been donated different autograph collections. And so there's going to be an exhibit on that, on collecting autographs and telling the stories of some of the famous people whose autographs we have and some of the people who might not be so remembered today by a lot of people. Like George Bancroft, who is some people remember is one of the fathers of American the study of American history. And then we'll have an exhibit of things recently donated to the collection. Right. Uh, because there have been so many artists, every year we get a lot of paintings into the collection. This year, the highlight will be a six-foot-tall painting of a marble quarry by Wallace Von Stock. Very cool. And then in our main gallery, we'll have an exhibit on kind of part three of a long-term series of exhibits. This one will be the history of Dorset from 1840 to 1870. Well, I bet people in the area just love coming to the Dorset Historical Society Museum. Very One cool. thing I find really nice and gratifying is that there's a rumor, a myth, that people who go into historical societies or any museums don't read the labels. Yeah. And yet, the people who come into our museum for whatever reason will, will read our labels. They'll spend some time looking at the exhibits. And that's always gratifying to know that people do have that interest. In, in the information, they'll spend the time and look over things. Well, John, can you tell us a couple of funny or interesting stories from your society's history? This is a family broadcast, right? Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> One story I'll tell that I just like this story. So please indulge me with it. There was a woman who lived in town called Elizabeth Prentice. She was around, I don't have her exact dates, but she and her husband, who is a minister down in Philadelphia, had a second home here in Dorset. They built it as a second home. It's remembered as the first house built as a second home in Dorset around 1869. And they would come up and eventually retired here by the 1870s. She was an author. She was a very prolific author, known for a series of what we Today would call young adult books. Okay. And her husband was a minister and she was Christian as well, as were her novels. There were young adult novels about, I don't want to oversimplify, but young Christians being tempted and overcoming temptation. Okay. And Stepping Heavenward is still in print and is still being read 
by many, many people around, around the country and around the world. In fact, a prayer study guide from, from a woman who had written it. So it's a study guide and prayer guide using Stepping Heavenly over, I think, several months, perhaps a year. I forget off the top of my head. So she's still remembered for that. And also she's remembered for a hymn she wrote. I believe it was called All My Love to Thee. So that's the background to the story. So we get in the historical society every so often people who are tracing the footsteps of Elizabeth Prentice. One summer day, three women came in. I think they were from Ohio, maybe from Illinois. I'm sorry about being so vague there. But the three women in the early Middle Ages came in and asked us for information, asked us where their house was, and asked us where she was buried. And at the time, when people wanted to know where people were buried in Dorset, I would take out a huge map, look up the name in a card catalog, and find out the lot that the person was buried in. Okay. And now it's all online. You can do it through our website, find out where people are buried. So it's a huge map. It's on this table in our research room, big table. And I don't know the exact lot number. Let's say it was um, lot 67. So I find lot 67 and show them and tell them how to get there in the large cemetery and how to find it. And they go off and they're happy. I assume they found it. Didn't hear back from them. And so that was nice. That's just part of what I do. You know, help people out, find historic sites for people. The next day, and that's what makes this so great, the coincidence of it being the next day. There was a couple in from, I believe it was Kentucky, somewhere near there, near Ohio, where the other one had been, but not in the same state. I believe it was Kentucky. And he was doing research into his family who had lived in Dorset back in the early 1800s. And he wants to know where his family is buried. So I get out the map of all the lots. I look up his family name and I say, oh, your ancestors are buried in lot number 66. <laughs> and that's kind of funny because yesterday there was some woman in looking for lot 67. All right. And they say, oh, were they related to us? And I said, I don't think so. They were looking for the tomb of Elizabeth Prentice. And they just both kind of froze. And the woman, the wife, looked at me and said, the Elizabeth Prentice? <laughs> now, I have to tell you, my upbringing, I, I had no connection with Elizabeth Prentice. I didn't know who Elizabeth Prentice was until about 2011 when I started the Dorset Historical Society. So the, somebody from Kentucky would have heard, from, heard about her. That kind of took me aback and was impressed. And I said, well, yes, she wrote a book called Stepping Heavenward. And she said, yeah, she wrote All My Love Today. And I said, yes, you, you, you know it? And the husband and wife looked at each other and sitting there around the research table, off, just off memory, began to sing the hymn. Oh, nice. And that, that's the amazing thing about local history. You don't always know how much it emanates into other people's lives away from the community. Oh, that is so true. Community serving. That is so true. That's that's one of my favorite stories. I've got so much to ask you. Do you have any collections exhibited anywhere else in the area, like the airport or city hall or any of that? Every so often, we will have a temporary exhibit somewhere. Usually, we've had them out in front of the church on Memorial Day, small Memorial Day exhibit. 
And then we've had things in the library about the history of the library. We also have some things on the walls of the town hall. Actually, Dorset is building a new town hall, so I'm going to have to talk to them about what do you want? Do you want things freshened up? Um, and before you close down the old town hall, let's make sure we get the stuff that's there now out of there. Oh, yeah. Very cool. They're not up yet, but the uh, church in town has also undergone some renovations. Okay. And someone went over to see if we had any really good old photographs of the church in right. one of its earlier formations that they could put in their new hallway. It's a nice church. You've got these four things coming up off the, I think you call it a spire. And mm -hmm. there's four things that almost look like, I don't know, some kind of ornamental things that are like four feet tall coming off the top. Yes. And they were originally wooden when the church was wooden. And they just replaced them when they, after the original church burned and they rebuilt it out of stone oh, back around 1909. I always ask this question, John, but if your building were to catch fire, if the museum were to catch fire, what things would you grab on your way out? Researchers and docents. I would make sure that everyone got out safe. There are artifacts that are irreplaceable. Pretty much everything is irreplaceable. Yeah. But if there was a fire, the first priority would be to make sure that everyone, that the fire department was alerted and that everyone got out of the building safe and sound and that everyone's cars were moved to make way for the fire trucks. Right. The collections are in the basement. I don't really see myself running around in the basement during a fire. I don't see that as really safe or responsible behavior. But if there was time to remove anything, near the main entrance to our building is an 1856 county map for Bennington, Vermont. And I would grab, it's very heavy, I would get someone to help me. And we would bring that out. Very cool. But other than that, it's something that is a nightmare. Things would be lost if there was a fire. And all the more reason to make sure that that never happens. Yeah, you bet. Absolutely. Yeah. So what kind of funding model supports the society? And what are your funding goals this year? We are a membership-driven organization. So that's where the bulk of our money comes in, from individual donors, from the people who give $35 or $50 for a membership, all the way up to people who give over $1,000 to support the society. We also get $7,500 from the good people of Dorset every year. Nice. We vote on it every year at the town meeting on the floor. And so that's great to see democracy in action. Someone says, is there a motion to approve the request from Dorset Historical Society? And there's a motion and a second. And then the people of the town at town meeting vote yes, and then they move on to the next thing. But it's always nice to see that, that support coming from the town. Absolutely. And there are asks from other wealthier people in the area for, for other monies to close up the budget. We don't get anything from county, state, or federal government. Okay. So what are your funding goals this year? To meet our budget. I don't have our budget in front of me, but it's under $100,000, I believe. And that's, that's what we're, we're going to try to, try to make. All right. Cool. Do you have any special initiatives going, oral interviews or fixing the roof or any of that? No, for, um, the physical plant 
we're doing fairly well. I mean, it's a house. It's an old house that always needs some kind of work done on it. But back in, I think it was 2013, we worked with the American Association of Museums and the IMLS to get a survey of our collections and our building done by third-party professionals to look over our collections care and come up with recommendations Mm -hmm. and to look at our physical plant and come up with recommendations for how the building could be better. And the person working with the collections made a lot of recommendations, especially in terms of how our textiles could be better kept. But the person with the physical plant, partly because it was essentially a new building at the time with the renovations of 2005, 2006, found one stray tree sprout coming up near the foundation in the front of the building. That was the only thing he found that he could be critical of. Cool. So in general, with roof and all that, we're we're in good condition. We have to replace the slates every some slates every so often because we have a slate roof and fix things here and there. We just needed to put in a new security camera system. But we not, there's no major outlays. The major outlay that will be coming down the road that we'll have a capital campaign for is a major addition onto the what's the back of the building. It will create more storage space. It will create more exhibit space. And it will also have an elevator so that everything will be handicapped accessible. Nice. And we've got the plans for that that have been approved by the planning commission and all the people who need to approve such things. We just need to raise the money. So that'll be a capital campaign coming down the road. I can't say when. What I can say is that Phase one to make sure that that's a reality has begun. So that's maybe fantastic. in a few years we'll have that all finished. Are you looking to write grant proposals for that? Probably not. We in the past have had enough generous people in the community to fund things, oh, nice. whether it's outright cash or working kind. We have a very good reputation in town, and in two thousand five, two thousand six. A lot of the labor was done gratis. People, carpenters and whatnot, did the work and charged for supplies, charged for materials, but not for their hours, which just, I don't know how we could have done it without that. So in-kind donations and cash donations and everything in between, and we get it done. Well, that's fantastic, John. That's so good to hear you have community support. I appreciate your time. What type of fundraising activities or opportunities does your society offer? Well, we do have a variety. We do have our gift shop, which is also available online, where we sell a variety of books on local history. And other things I mentioned earlier, the Harmon Mint, we sell reproductions of the coins from the Harmon Mint. Oh, that's great. Yeah, but I should add the 85 version, not the 86 version of the coin. I'm very judgmental about that. I think that the 1886 version was a mistake. They should have stuck with the 1785 version, which is a much cooler design. But we don't need to go into all of that. We have some bestsellers, which include a walking and driving tour of Dorset book. We also have a book by gentleman named Tyler Rush called Dorset in the Shadow of the Marble Mountains, which is a history of Dorset that is very comprehensive and 
is a very brisk seller. We sell it through our gift shop and a gift shop in a or a bookshop in in a neighboring town, Manchester. Very cool. And do you have holiday celebrations? Yes, we do have our holiday open house every December, first week in December, Saturdays, usually from eleven to one. It's a lot of fun. I know your podcast reaches a worldwide audience, but if you happen to be in Dorset, it's a really good time. We have different rooms set up to represent different eras in Dorset's history and the way Christmas would have been celebrated, the types of trees they would have. They change histories of the Christmas carols that would have been available during a certain time. For instance, in the more modern room, we might have the history of Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer, which, believe it or not, they were not singing in 1850. (laughs) <laughs> it's a more modern song. I know people might find that shocking. And we have those songs playing throughout the museum, through our sound system. Nice. We also, and history of local things happening with, with the holidays throughout time. And best of all, we searched through old handwritten cookbooks in our collection and come up with a bunch of recipes, sweet recipes, cookies, brownies, cupcakes, things like that, that volunteers make and serve in different rooms, depending on how old the cookbook was that we got it from. So you're in the 1960s room, and you get recipes that are from 1950s and 1960s cookbooks. Oh, that's nice. You're in the 1890s room. It's a big, huge Victorian tree, and there are handwritten recipes from the 1880s and 1890s. Wow, that has to be so much fun. That's it is, great. It is. And, and you said you rely mainly on memberships. What can you tell us about memberships? Memberships, you can sign up online from our website. I believe the starting membership starts at $35, and we'll accept any amount you want to give us. You want to give us, you know, $20 million? We're fine with that. But Generally, they're $35 and they reach up to $1,000, maybe a little bit more in some cases. And for that, you get a discount in the gift shop and a newsletter and knowing that you are helping to preserve Dorset's history for future generations. How often is the newsletter published? We come out with it about three times a year. We just came out with one in February. The next one will probably come out in late May, early June to announce all of our activities going on in the summer, our um, open houses, our ice cream social, our hikes to old quarries that are in the middle of the woods, and possibly another hike. We're not sure if we're going to add a fourth hike this year. And things like that, just let people know what our lectures are for the summer when we're, we're so busy. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, when does your season end? Because Vermont has, well, maybe not this winter, like you mentioned, but Vermont usually has a cold, snowy winter. You, you'd you have to stop normal operations in like October, November? No. No. Well, the, the saying is there are five seasons in Vermont. Oh. Winter, spring, summer, and autumn, which you have heard of. And also mud season. Okay. Which is, you can't, you really can't get anywhere easily on the back roads because the mud ruts are over a foot deep. In some places, there are photographs from the early 20th century of cars just up above the wheels in the mud. Um, it gets so bad when 
got several feet of snow and it all melts all at once. Yeah. It wreaks havoc on the river. Uh, there's flooding in a lot of the fields and the roads just disintegrate. So that's mud season. But although this is the slow season right now, because it's not all that touristy right now, we do get visitors throughout the year, mainly in the summer when it's easy to travel around and you do have the people who go down south for the winter back in town. Uh, they're a big force. But if it's December and it's a rainy day and people are in the area to ski and they can't ski, they come to us. Oh, yeah. And that that's always good to see. And then fall, we're very busy right up until Columbus Day because that's when the leaves change color. And that's a huge time for, for tourists as well. Wow, fantastic. It's time for us to take another break, believe it or not. 30 minutes has gone by. All right, listeners, we'll be right back after these important messages. Please join the Dorset Historical Society and support their efforts to bring history to life for you and your family. Visit dorsetvthistory.org and learn more about this valuable local nonprofit organization. Please donate, volunteer, and become a member, or visit them today at Route 30 at Kent Hill Road, Dorset, Vermont 05251. This is well worth your backing and you'll feel so good helping to preserve the history of Dorset and convey it to the next generations. Thank you for listening to Preservation Oaks. If you're a member of a museum, historical or genealogical society that has not yet been featured as a guest on our program, please let them know to contact preservationoaks at gmail.com. We welcome everyone. Thank you. Hola. Si es nuevo en los Estados Unidos o es de ascendencia hispana, querrá ser voluntario y apoyar a su sociedad histórica o genealógica local. ¿Por qué? Porque ahora eres parte del tejido de Estados Unidos, y estas sociedades quieren ayudar a contar tu historia familiar y tu historia. Si desea que su cultura se conserve como parte de nuestra historia estadounidense, eche un vistazo a su área y conéctese con su sociedad local. Estarás contento de haberlo hecho. Gracias. The best thing about Preservation Oaks is that you get history instantly, right when you want it. Listeners of Preservation Oaks learn how they can experience unlimited fun and knowledge at their local museums, cultural and heritage institutions, historical and genealogical societies across the United States. All that for a single low-cost annual membership. Now that's high value. If you're not already a member or a volunteer, then be sure to get it done today. This is Lindsay Flory, Programming Director of the Osage County Historical Society and Holly Genealogical Research Center. And you're listening to Preservation Oaks. This is David Reed, Chief Curator with the Reno County Museum in Hutchinson, Kansas. And I love listening to Sean Thomas Radcliffe on MicroStream Radio. I was made of tough rawhide by a master. He put a lot of special tooling on my horn, pommel, skirts, cantle, fenders, jockeys, strings, and cinch. My conchos were made of pure silver. I was presented to the first prize winner. That's where I met Matt. 
From then on, Matt used me on holidays, special trail rides, for parades, and other events. He would oil me, and wipe me down every time he used me. He was so proud of me, and I was happy to be a part of his tack. Years went by, and Matt used me less and less. Finally, I was used at his funeral with his favorite horse Annie. We looked great together. Then, I sat in the tack room for years. Finally, the ranch was sold, and I was discovered under a blanket of dust by the new owner. She marveled at me, and I can remember that day so well. She oiled me again and donated me to the local historical society museum. They replaced the brittle latigos and strings, and even paid to retool them to match. I looked good again. Now, I'm on display for the community to see every day, and they marvel at the way I look and how I'm made. I feel so proud that I can help others understand the past, which I guess I'm now a part of. Rather than throwing it out, please donate historical records and objects to your local historical society, today. I am General Matto van du Maximanus, from the planet you refer to as, BD 114672C. I am the legate of the second AB Picturis B region, governor of the approaches to NU Octantis AB, interplanetary consul, commander of the legions of AB Picturis A, 91 Aquari B, Mulionis B, and Gamma Library B, and I listen to Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. Nine out of ten family historians agree, Preservation Oaks is the best podcast on the internet. And now, back to Preservation Oaks. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. We're here today with John Mathewson from the Dorset Historical Society located in Dorset, Vermont. John, we've learned so much. Let's get back into this and welcome back. Hey, it's great to be back and with you and all, all the listeners. You said you do work with school children. What kind of work does the society do with school children? Sometimes the kids will pull up in a bus and come out and I'll give them a guided tour of the museum. Sometimes I'll go into the schools and give a talk to an auditorium full of kids or to, to a classroom. And then what I'm still surprised by that this actually happened. Last spring, I gave a walking tour of part of the village to a group of first graders. And the teacher said what she wanted me to concentrate on. Architectural history for first graders. <laughs> and I was thinking, fine, you're the teacher. Okay, I can do that. No problem. And I was so amazed at how bright the kids were. They had been talking about different architectural styles really? in houses, and they were very fast learners. Wow. Um, and they pointed out things on some of the buildings that I hadn't noticed myself. That was great. I hope we do it again this spring. Now, I understand you have a research library. What can you tell us about that? We do. It, we've got so many books in that library, not just on Dorset history, but Vermont history as well. And we also have a selection of books by Dorset authors. You mentioned earlier that there are a lot of visual artists in Dorset over the years. There's also been a lot of writers in Dorset, from Elizabeth Prentice, who I mentioned before, to Zephine Humphrey, who wrote The History, and whose archives created the seed of our collection. She wrote a series of 
popular books during the early 20th century on living in Dorset. Those are always fun to get through. So we have all 14 of her books. And then there have just been other people who have lived in town who have written books. Most recently, and you wouldn't know this from the way I'm about to describe it, but this is a book about Dorset. It's a young adult reader book written by a woman called Nicole Valentine. And it's called A Time Traveler's Theory of Relativity. Again, you wouldn't think it was about Dorset, right. but it's all about Dorset and Dorset history and Dorset marble, and it's a really intriguing book. I, I highly recommend it. Very cool. So, so we have that book and, and other authors as well who have been in the area. A couple of years ago, I think right towards the beginning of the pandemic, some gentlemen, um, mainly Bill Mayers and Ross Conrad, came out with the history of Vermont beekeeping, cool. a book. And it is just so fascinating. Really interesting history on beekeeping on a nationally significant level started here in Vermont from Mr. Weeks up in Salisbury, Vermont, with the first removable frame hives before Reverend Langstaff in Pennsylvania came up with his to the Moraz family up in Middlebury, who have pioneered the research into apitherapy. It's, it's a fascinating history. And what kind of therapy? Apitherapy. Um, bee sting therapy. Um, helping out people oh. with arthritis by getting bee stings near their joints. I'll be. Wow, I yeah. haven't heard of that before. And in Dorset, even near us, on the edge of the village, there was a widow in the 1880s who made her living not from dairying like so many other farmers at the time were, but from beekeeping, she had quite a large um, bee yard. Nice. That's always interesting to find out about. Yeah, we are trying to get a lot of those up onto our online catalog, which you can access through our website, dorsetvthistory.org. And we have a lot of our items, our objects online that you can find out about, and a lot of our photographs and pieces of artwork. And we will be getting the books that we have in our library up online at some point soon. Very cool. Thanks for that. And I know you also have a wonderful YouTube channel. What can you tell us about that? Well, it's a wonderful YouTube channel um, at Dorset um, Historical Society on YouTube. And what we have up on that are some short talks that I've done that I did during the pandemic with our intern, um, just on different artifacts that were interesting. But primarily the things on our YouTube channel are videos of our third Thursday lunchtime lectures. Not all of our lecturers want to be preserved on YouTube, so they're not all up there, right. but most of them are. And people can watch them. And it's amazing. Last Thursday, we had our most recent third Thursday lecture. And there were there was a large crowd. There were maybe 10 people in the room. But already, I know that there have been um, over 100 views of it on our Facebook page. And it hasn't gone up to the YouTube channel yet. I'll do that tomorrow. So that's 10 times as many people are watching it um, online than were there in person, which is good to know that people are interested, even if they can't get into the actual museum. Absolutely. Especially, I mean, if I come into the area, if I come into Dorset as a tourist, as a skier, and mm -hmm. I visit the Historical Society, maybe it rained one day and I visit, you know, I can go back to where I came from and I can still stay in touch 
via your website, via your YouTube channel, and I'm sure there's more coming. Oh, yeah. And what I want to add in here for people who want to visit through the website is on our website under research, there's our Maple Hill Cemetery database where you can find out where everyone's buried. And you can look at in the privacy of your own home, on your laptop or your desktop or whatever. Or you can drive around town with it as a driving tour, series of driving tours. We have all the buildings in the historic districts, towards the village and Kent neighborhood. Historic districts have all the information on there, pictures of all the houses, where exactly the houses are, and a little bit of their histories. We also have one for all the schools in Dorset. There used to be 14 school districts in Dorset, each with its own schoolhouse, and we tell you where each schoolhouse was and pictures of the schoolhouses and histories when, when they were a schoolhouse and whatnot. And all the different cemeteries. Again, I think there are about 14 cemeteries in town, one of which has gone missing. So if anyone finds it, let me know. And with pictures of those. And so if you want to visit this cemetery, I got the GPS coordinates um, by standing right in the center of the cemetery. Before that, there had been written descriptions to get to the cemetery, which were open to interpretation. Yeah. I got lost looking for two of them. And so now it's harder to get lost. I those, hope. Those maps are really great. You've got four or five different ones on the website. How long did those yeah, take to create? Not that long. Because for the cemeteries and schools, for instance, a lot of the research had been done. And I just had to type it in or scan it in. And we had the pictures all ready to go in. So other than visiting the cemeteries to get the actual GPS coordinates, a few hours, really. Oh, that's not The fun. one that's taken the longest, and by taking the longest, I started it several years ago and haven't finished it yet, is the Dorset Trail. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. It was a hiking trail that was built in the 1920s by the Dorset Science Club, um, headed up by George Holly Gilbert, who has a very interesting history. I don't want to go into it, but his story alone is interesting. But the trail, this is the same time that the long trail that goes the entire length of Vermont along the spine of the Green Mountain, right after that was built, and Right before the Appalachian Trail was being built, the Dorset Trail was built, and it basically went around the mountaintop that separates the two Dorsets, and then it, the mountain range creates kind of a horseshoe shape, so it comes back onto itself. Yeah. And so the trail followed that ridge line. Once you got to the ridge line, it told you how to get up. And it would take 17 hours of hiking. If you were to do it all at once, according to the person who wrote the guidebook in 1927. And he said, so you might want to do it in several different sections. Or when you get tired, just cut down a few saplings and create a lean-to and sleep there for the night. And continue on the next day. Yeah. Don't worry about whose property you're on or anything like that. And a lot of that trail has gone by the wayside. Dorset Science Club disbanded in the 1950s. But there has been an effort recently to recreate a lot of the trail systems that used to exist in Dorset and add to it. And the town recently purchased some land 
It's the Owlshead Town Forest. And working with the town, the Historical Society has put up a bunch of historic interpretive signs along the trail. Oh, that's great. It's a lot of fun to talk because it's you're walking in the middle of the woods, but it used to be an industrial site with communities of people living there. And so we help show where those people were. LIDAR images show where the house foundations were for some of the quarry workers, things like that. And it just adds, I think, another dimension to the basic hike in the woods. Yeah, that's very cool. Can you mountain bike on that? Yes. Um, there is a separate system of mountain bike trails in the Alicet Town Forest. That's very cool. And if you go to the Town of Dorset website, they've got maps of the hiking trails and the biking trails. Well, thanks for that. Now, you've got historical markers on the trail. You've got historical markers in the town. You've got a building. You've got grounds. You've got a lot of things going on, including all of the events that you guys work on. And you yourself mm-hmm. personally give many presentations, a lot of which are on the YouTube channel. You must use a lot of volunteers for that. Oh, yeah. Our lifeblood has always been the volunteers. I am a paid employee. and but right now I'm the only one, and which means that everything else is done by volunteers. Setting up the lectures, providing food for the lectures, docenting during weekends and during week time hours, doing a lot of uh, cataloging, data entry, collections preservation, inventorying, re- helping to lead the hikes, on and on and on is volunteer work, which is just so appreciated. Yeah, and I hope everybody listening in the area, outside the area, those people that go to the area, you know, once a year, please do volunteer. It's well worth your time. If you're not near Dorset, you're near a historical society, and I bet they need help. Yep, absolutely. So how does your society interface with the other societies and organizations in the county or the at the state level or regional level? Oh, in a lot of different ways. The most exciting thing right now is there's a Bennington County 250th Anniversary Committee that I'm participating in. It involves state, local, private, public concerns, business concerns, museum concerns, all about the upcoming 250th anniversary of fill-in-the-blank, um, either the um, Declaration of Independence. Yeah, the Declaration or the of the Constitution. Or the starting mm-hmm. of Vermont. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So the Green Mountain Boys, uh, there have been already annual events about 250th anniversary of different things. I mentioned Remember Baker earlier. And last spring, or early summer, down in East Arlington, they had um, local actors do a play that was only was written and rehearsed and only performed this once about a town meeting of early Green Mountain Boys deciding what to do about the arrest of Remember Baker. And they were all in costume and just, it was just an amazing time. And the audience was in the pews of the church where they would have had a town meeting back then. And uh, some of the actors were in the audience. So they'd be coming up and yelling things right next to you. So you were really in the midst of things. And it was just a very well done thing. And they had um different historical societies and organizations display booths there as well. And just a wonderful thing. And that's going to be happening um, every year through the celebration, these years of celebration. 
in commemoration. That's really cool. And the 250th committee is based in Bennington, and we're setting up a website for it and a bunch of different activities online and in-person lecture series of uh, book club um, with just an amazing amount of relevant books that people will be reading. So stay tuned for that. That's going to be in 2026, right? It's, well, it's already happening. Ah, okay. Um, in 2025, you know, Dorset will be in the spotlight for the Dorset Conventions at Cephas Kent's Tavern. All um, right, yeah. Yeah, very cool. So it's going to be happening over the next few years, and you're planning um, all kinds of acti activities. Very cool. Well, that'll be a great yes. thing for people visiting the area to take advantage of and especially learn about. I don't think it's on anybody's lips right now that I've heard anyway. I haven't seen it on news or news outlets or anything that, hey, the 250th anniversary of the United States is coming up. There are things, at least here on the East Coast, that are coming out about it. There is a national one that has been embroiled in some kind of controversy. Yeah. And it's being basically left up to the states and the communities to do it. So right now it's very fragmented. Okay. Uh, by approach. And so that's one of the things we're figuring out how to deal with. If right now it's all very fragmented with different people doing different things. How do we unite all of these efforts into one? And yeah. the best way to do it we're figuring is through websites and links on websites and cooperating with other other people doing different events. For instance, we're doing Bennington County. Windsor County on the other side of the mountain will be doing things, and so we'll certainly want to coordinate with them and the good work they'll be doing. Yeah, what a great opportunity to get together and uh, do that kind of planning and coordination. That's great. Other uh, things we do, um, I mentioned Vermont History Day. That's done through the Vermont Historical Society which is a really strong organization with a lot of, they do a lot of outreach to the area. Most recently, there was one over in Wyndham County of local historical societies set up on the green, and that was wonderful. And those are great things to participate in. I think there was one up in Fairhaven, Vermont last summer for Rutland County. So these kind of interactions are always, always good to, to participate in. Absolutely. I want to get back to your website for a moment. What kinds sure. of things can people do or find on your website? Well, you can become a member. You can, or make other donations. You can buy things through the gift shop. You can find out what we're coming up with um, on the calendar. You can find our new exhibits, new and current exhibits coming up. You can get past issues of our newsletter. You can see a picture of what I look like with a beard. Of course, since this is a podcast, you don't really know what I look like without a beard unless you get it screen capture. <laughs> and then there is a research page, which is probably our most popular one, because that's where all those maps are that I mentioned, as well as the cemetery map for Maple Hill Cemetery to find out where the people are buried. We also have an online collections database. Also in town, we have the Dorset Playhouse, which was created by three barns, moved from Rupert by Charlie Wade. Back in 1929, the Dorset Players were founded in 1927, and there's a long history of amateur and professional theater in Dorset. And so we've got a lot of records going back to the 1880s, uh, 1878, actually, I'm sorry, about plays being produced in Dorset that are all available to research on the website nice. up through 1975. And here's a, a slide that I came across about a year ago. I was watching an old favorite movie. 
It's a comedy by a guy called Alfred Hitchcock, who you've heard of, Master yeah. of Suspense. Yeah. He did a comedy in the mid 1950s that takes place in Vermont. Yeah. Called The Trouble with Harry. Yeah. And I, I, I love that movie. I, I do too. It. It's one of my favorites. There is a scene where the main character, John Forsythe, is the name of the actor, is in a small notion shop and talking with another character. And it's not a long scene, but it's in a small notion shop. Then someone comes in to look for the perfect teacup to buy. Well, what I noticed that I hadn't noticed before was in the background, there's a poster on the wall. And that's for the fall season of plays at the Dorset Playhouse in 1954. Cool. So there I am watching this old Albert Hitchcock movie. And wait, that's work right there. That's great. That's the Dorset history right there in the Alfred Hitchcock movie. I watch that movie from time to time, probably twice a year, just because I love the music and I love the cinematography of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great movie. So all the plays, all the actors and authors and photos and playbills up to 1975 are available on our website. And I'm working on getting more of those up there by the end of the summer. Wow, that's um, a great thing. Some surprises, some things that surprised me. During one summer, a college kid was doing a, his first out-of-college acting. And that was a guy called Walter Koenig. And nobody recognizes that name, it seems. I don't. But he was on, he was a regular on the original Star Trek television series. He played the character of Chekhov. Oh, I'll be darned. In the TV series and, of course, later on in the, the movies. And he got his... First out of college experience on stage in, in Dorset. We have pictures of him on stage with the other actors, some who were just passing through like him and others. Emmett Walsh got his start here six years after he was on the Dorset stage. He was in Midnight Cowboy. And more recently, I saw him in Knives Out, which Very was nice. a mystery movie that came out back in, I think, 2019. So all interesting stuff on, on that part of our website. Uh, fantastic. Yeah, you have a really nice website. Now, you mentioned you. that one of your initiatives of the society is to expand the building. Is that the current initiative or needs of the society that you want people in your area to know about and support? Yeah. After the expansion in 2005, 2006, we realized that we, I wasn't with the society at the time, but the society members just realized that it needed more space. You just have to get, the board needs to organize itself and people who, who can help with the process to move that forward. And so getting a, someone to be essentially a clerk of the works, among other things, is in the works now. And then there'll be the capital campaign. And mm -hmm. what that would do would be to put on the back of the building something that will look like a, an old barn, and it will have a full dry basement with an elevator that will bring you upstairs to a larger lecture space. The, where we have our talks now isn't the largest. There are times when there have been standing room only or sitting against the wall only seating. And we just want to improve on that and more exhibit space as well. And to make everything handicap accessible. Yeah. Um, we, we really need to do that. Yeah, that's um, important. Yes. Um, our first floor is totally handicap accessible. We just can't get upstairs. And so that would be the next really big project. Okay. I want to thank you, John, for spending the time with us today. 
I've had a great time. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm really glad to meet you. I'm grateful, very grateful for your time and your expertise and your dedication. It really comes through. The things that we've oh. learned from you today, nobody would have even, you know, outside of your expertise and some of the people that are members of your society and the community, you know, there's a lot that you have brought forward today that I didn't know, and I'm sure our listeners didn't know either. Well, all the more reason not so much to come to the Dorset Historical Society or become a member, because you certainly should. But we've got a local historical society in your neighborhood, and they're willing to tell you about the history of where you live. And no matter where you live, it's got history. It's got people who've gone before you, and historical societies are a good way of honoring that. Yep, absolutely well said. Thank you. Congratulations on your June 2nd opening for the season, and I hope that goes really well. And good luck on your expanding the building. I hope that comes sooner rather than later. You're very inspiring. So thanks again for being here. Thank you, and I'm glad that you're doing this important podcast. And with that, we'll end our time with our guest, John Mathewson. Listeners, please stay tuned for my comments and wrap-up, which is coming up next. Something I learned during my time with John, in 1777, the country, the independent country of the Republic of Vermont was created by the people of Vermont. It lasted for 14 years. I never knew that before. The history of Vermont and Dorset is just amazing. Dorset tells the story of the history of the independent spirit of America, personified by the people of Vermont. The Green Mountain Boys and the current way the people run their government in Vermont is so eye-opening to learn about. Vermont was the 14th state in our union and is truly a part of the bedrock of American freedom. John Mathewson is such a capable leader and a fountain of knowledge about Vermont and Dorset. He's a great truth-teller of history, making it fun and relevant to learn about. John is very hard-working, engaging, and dedicated to the people of Dorset and Vermont. He and his team of volunteers are making life better, helping to shape the future, and serving the community. You folks in Dorset can be very proud of what you've built with the Dorset Historical Society. Not only does it provide so much great information about the history of Dorset and Vermont, but John and his team approach each new season with more value-added exhibits lectures, and other excellent events. You have so much history in Dorset and so much future. That history has shaped your area in Vermont for the better, and I'm so glad we had a chance to meet with John and learn more about it. A truly special place in our country. So much is going on at the Dorset Historical Society, and John laid out the priorities of the Society for 2023 and beyond. You can feel good supporting the Dorset Historical Society by donating, volunteering, joining, and visiting the Society. It is a very worthwhile endeavor. The most pressing priority of the Dorset Historical Society at this time is a major addition to the building in order to gain more storage, 
lecture, education, and exhibit space, and also to provide handicapped access to the second floor of the building. If you can help, please connect with the Society. The Society is supported to a large extent by donations and volunteers. Please help support the Dorset Historical Society. No matter where you live across the world, when you become a member of the Dorset Historical Society, you can stay connected via their newsletter, Facebook, YouTube, and the Society's website. John reviewed the funding and fundraising particulars of the Society so you know where the funds are going and what the priorities are. Any funds you're able to provide are tax-deductible and will certainly be used to the benefit of the community. I'd like to wish the Society and its volunteers a fantastic 2023 season opening in June. I'd also like to congratulate the Society and the community for 60 years of the Dorset Historical Society. I hope you all have some excellent opportunities to participate in the 250th anniversary of the United States, Dorset, and Vermont. One last time, the contact information for the Society, you can visit them on the web at dorsetvthistory.org. Their mailing address is P.O. Box 52, Route 30 at Kent Hill Road, Dorset, Vermont, 05251. You can phone them at 802-867-0331. And you can email them at info at dorsetvthistory.org. If questions occur to you and you'd like more information, please connect with the Society via the contact information just mentioned. If you're a listener in the area the Society serves, or if you're a listener researching ancestors in the community the Society serves, and you're not already a member, please consider joining and supporting the Dorset Historical Society. I hope this information helps the audience understand how valuable the Society is to the community and what kinds of excellent services they have to offer to their members and the public. I know you'll agree with me that the Dorset Historical Society is truly one of our nation's preservation oaks. Okay, that's a wrap for this episode. Music used today is from Scott Holmes, Symbol Bird, Aaron Kenny, Carmen Maria, and Edu Espinal, Freedom Trail Studio, Alway, and the Score Wizards. Microstream Radio is a registered trademark you can visit at microstreamradio.com. This broadcast is owned and copyrighted by Microstream Radio. It cannot be rebroadcast, downloaded, copied, or used anywhere without the written permission of Microstream Radio. Thanks to everybody for listening. This is Sean Radcliffe. I'll see you on the next episode of Preservation Hopes. <laughs>